0: Phonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback.
1: I'm Spencer Faust, for All Things Considered.
0: And today we are starting our very first episode. Spencer, how are you feeling?
1: Oh, I'm excited. I'm so excited. Ooh, I'm I'm nervous. I'm so excited, too. I'm nervous. See, I'm I'm what you would call a music dummy, is the thing, so it's sort of like I'm flipping the roles of of my comfortable podcast, The Cock and Bull. And now I'm the vulnerable one who doesn't know what's happening, so...
0: Wow, vulnerable but still willing to plug in that other podcast.
1: Oh, Jack, trust (laughs) me, I'm on the clock. I gotta make my money back somehow. I've done nothing but sink finances (laughs) into my podcasting
0: career. Jack, how you doing? How you doing? I'm doing all right. You say you're a music dummy? I'd like to hear a little (laughs) bit about, like, what that means. Like, what kind of music do you listen to?
1: Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll lay a little profile down. So, I, Spencer Faust am uh I, i'm a multimedia man i mean i make podcasts i make videos uh and i've been in a handful of garage bands um the genre that i would definitely put first on my tinder profile would be punk rock um though when i say punk rock i'm i'm not Talking like the traditional, you know, late '80s Bad Religion kind of thing. I'm really, I'm really more into. I think punk hit its stride in 2006 during the Bush administration. Albums like Sufferer and The Witness, uh, For Blood and Empire by Anti Flag. That's that's really my cup of tea. So it sounds like a lot of melodic hardcore
0: sort of stuff when it comes to punk. Definitely, definitely. Um, I'm more of an artsy fart. I love when rock music goes very experimental and atmospheric. My top five is constantly changing. I've known you for a while, and
1: we talk about music nonstop. I legitimately could not have pinned down a top five for you if you asked me to. That's <laughs> You're not an easy book to read is the thing. You have such a large library
0: that you always pull from. It's probably my favorite thing to just go on Spotify or YouTube and just listen to as much as I can. I listen to everything from hip hop to jazz, but when I really think back to things I resonate with the most, it's usually that more artistic rock. Uh, where you have these bands that end up creating these works that last beyond generations that everyone talks about. Absolutely. I also love music production. That's something I like to do in my free time all the time, but I really don't have anything to show for it. It's all mostly a hobby at this point, but eventually I would love to start releasing stuff. Hopefully by this year. That's why I said (laughs) the last five years. There's that
1: addendum. Definitely (laughs) this year.
0: So... Uh, what are we doing here? So what are we doing? What's uh, what's what's our album today? What's this show? Well, this show is where we talk about either an album or an artist or even just a flat out an entire genre where there's a lot of troubled history behind it. That's where the name Blunderphonics comes from. Blunder usually means a stupid or careless mistake. Not always, but what I find really interesting when it comes to music is albums with this history behind it of mostly horrible horrible things going wrong or things are not turning out right i like hearing about the struggles going into the album and i don't know it's something that really enhances the listening experience for me so i was like hey spencer's a musical dummy let me just throw all (laughs) these these cursed albums at him and get his opinion and tell him a little bit about it because there's nothing i like more than just talking about music for hours on end
1: yeah, no, and this this really boils down to what we talk about at work constantly is just is Jack tells me the absurd history behind something I'm remotely interested in, and then it just gets me completely on board for it. Like, that's that's hooked me into listening to at least 10 different things. So today, we're we're talking about uh, uh, My Bloody Valentine, right? That's
0: right. We are talking about the legendary shoegaze group, My Bloody Valentine, and more specifically their album, Loveless. Mm-hmm. Spencer, what do you know about shoegaze and the genre as a whole? What do I know about shoegaze? It's, uh,
1: if I had to put it to, to my dumb dumb perspective, it's noise. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean, it's it's very noisy. A lot of FX. I believe the name shoegaze comes, it's like a tongue-in-cheek. The, the band members
0: are constantly staring at the pedals on the floor. So, shoegaze... That's exactly right. The genre was sort of a evolution or even just sort of like a weird Siamese twin of the genre Dream Pop, which also loves its atmosphere and making these very beautiful sounds, usually a female vocalist. The difference is, like you said, Shoegaze loves their wall of noise. Yeah. They really, (laughs) we're going to get into it later. They really love their noise. We'll get into it. But yeah, the term actually was invented as sort of a derogatory term, like some slang about, oh, these guys are just standing up there looking at their fucking feet, uh, just strumming their guitar, not looking at the audience, not interacting. Their performances were very boring and loud and noisy. And a lot of music press didn't like that. I'm sure, yeah. No, I can get that, yeah. It, it's not, like, an
1: exciting atmosphere. And and I feel like it's a, it's a spinoff of a more lively scene, which is why this transition feels more dull, I guess, from, like, a live perspective. The
0: bands who were kind of involved in the shoegaze genre actually didn't like it. They sort of revolted against it. It was almost like a toxic word, very similar to another one of my favorite uh, genres that died out, new Metal. Uh, a lot of bands were considered new metal and they're like no please if you label us that we are never going to sell and that's exactly what happened corn was just constantly running from that awful awful adjective <laughs> unlike new metal however shoegaze was a genre that eventually became a little bit more endearing uh, a lot of bands later on embraced it and it is seen as a positive genre a lot of people really enjoy it uh, one of my favorite quotes is actually from drummer Simon Scott from the very influential shoegaze band Slowdive, uh, he was saying in an interview with Drown for Sound that he loved anti-showmanship. He, he didn't think that you needed to be this big bombastic like David Lee Roth or anything on stage. You just needed mm. to focus on getting the music right. He said, quote, I think if Slowdive didn't stand there looking at what pedal was about to go on and off, we'd have been shite. Okay, I'm glad like <laughs> I'm glad we are static and concentrated on playing well. Now it's a positive term. This might be the punk in me. I do
1: definitely appreciate a lively stage presence. Like I, I re- that means a lot to me is the thing. Like I can mm-hmm. think of some of my favorite bands and a lot of whom have had. A uh, uh, big history with different guitarists, and like you can capture some eras where it was like, "Oh, did you see him live in 06? Yeah, uh, Chris Chase was like really—he fu- was a plank of wood playing that guitar. <laughs> uh, you get into 2007, and oh, Zach Blair is a fucking Rockettes dancer who was in Guar. All right, all right, cool addition. <laughs> but no, I yeah, I I can I can get the appreciation for wanting to get the music right. That's I mean that's the other half of the show. So.
0: And I thought that this would be an interesting episode to do because Shoegaze is almost the antithesis of punk. All these bands use these effects and they slather their sound into this big noise so that you can't really tell what's what. And punk is all about the raw energy about just Guitar, it doesn't matter if you can sing or not, just fucking do it. And shoegaze is a lot more meticulous and a lot more indie shit. (laughs) That (laughs) antithesis is going to come
1: to life between these two people here (laughs) when we start breaking (laughs) down our opinions on this
0: album. But Yeah, speaking of which, one of the most famous examples of guitar playing when it comes to shoegaze is known as the glide guitar where the band would hold their whammy bar and keep holding onto it as they strummed so that the tune, the the tuning and the sound of the guitar was constantly shifting. And the person who invented this was Kevin Shields. He's very, very creative to the point where he wants to kind of control everything. So we'll be talking about him a lot, so remember that name. The band was initially this really really shitty post-punk gothic rock outfit with a completely different singer and they're just they were just terrible. I listened to their first EP and I had to shut it off. It reminded me of like what you would put on at a Halloween party to scare like your little brother away <laughs> while you were drinking <laughs> booze in the basement. I don't know, it's just it's terrible. But yeah, their name was based off of the 1981 slasher flick and it was supposed to match that really shitty gothic phase. And that was something that they were constantly wondering, do we need to change our name? We're not really that like raw anymore. We're a lot more dreamy. Ah, eh, fuck it. We'll keep it. And nowadays they're constantly mixed up with Bullet for my Valentine. Mm-hmm.
1: That was when you when you put when this was in the list of albums to go through and I was doing my homework. I was like, oh, weird. I think I saw them open back in like
0: 2012. Crazy. Trust me, you would know if you saw these guys live because apparently they would just blow your head off. My Bloody Valentine was all about just making these very loud noises. Yeah. And this sort of first became a thing with 1987 Strawberry Wine, which was an EP where they first had their female vocalist, Belinda Butcher. When she was sort of introduced to the band, that's where the main lineup sort of stayed. We have Kevin Shields as the songwriter, vocalist, and guitarist. We have Belinda Butcher, who I just mentioned, Debbie Googe on bass, and then a man who's from Ireland with possibly the weirdest fucking name I've ever seen because I'm American and stupid. (laughs) Um, I'm going to try to pronounce it. It's Colum O'Kiyosawig? Oh, it's so refreshing to be on the
1: other end of a mispronunciation. (laughs) Normally Normally, that's my thing is I fuck up European
0: names. It's so nice to hear someone else get it wrong. I mean, I was like, man, I know all of these musicians' names. And I ran across this guy. I'm like, oh, I don't want to say that name. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure it's Kiyusha Wig. That, that does not sound like a name. It sounds like
1: alphabet fan fiction. Those are, those are letters where they don't belong. Why can't they have a name
0: like you 2 where it's like just Bono or The Edge? Yeah. Like you're, you're like, oh, maybe they're disguising. They're very complex. No, it's just Adam. No. Oh, it's just Adam Clayton. <laughs> it's like, oh, But then you have this guy who's alphabet soup. Yep. They actually were considered the punkiest of the shoegaze group they never use a chorus pedal flanger or any delay oh my stars and stripes how dare they <laughs> which is kind of weird because they're known for having a lot of effects and don't get me wrong yeah. my bloody my bloody valentine used at minimum 30 effects on a guitar but none of them were any of those because kevin shields thought they were too cushy <laughs> He's like, "No, this isn't raw enough. We need we need some more raw punk attitude in this," which is not something I really get.
1: You can't call it raw. I just there's the words mean something, Mr. Shield. You can't call it raw when you're adding 50 sonic spices to your guitar tracks. Like that shit's not raw anymore. I will say this. Their
0: first album, it's called uh Isn't Anything, right? From from 88. That's right. Isn't Anything. Which actually is pretty raw sounding. It's still kind of noisy, but not quite the wall of sound that Loveless is. Absolutely. Yeah. It's actually all of
1: my context going into Loveless. Like it's it's what I have listened to up to now. So it's Okay. I get a Suede vibe. I get a vibe that like they're on their way to Suede, like Brit
0: Pop kind of. I find it very interesting that you brought up Suede and Brit Pop in general. That's something we're going to go back to near the end of this podcast. I'm okay. glad you brought that up. Okay. One of the effects that Kevin Shields like to use. This is essentially what My Bloody Valentine is, between the whammy bar always being held and reverse reverb. That, once again, it, it, it's laying. It's it's explaining so much as you say this. Like I'm getting. I'm getting so much context out of this. They were performing with this other band called like. Bang Piff Pal, but one of the members of that band was Alan McGee, and he is a person who founded Creation Records. This is a record label known for a lot of independent musicians, specifically in uh, the UK. And this is known as one of those record labels with shoegaze being its primary focus during this time. So when he heard them play, he was like, wow, these guys are so much better than my shitty ass band. I want to sign them to Creation Records. When they got signed, they made an EP called You Made Me Realize, and they recorded Isn't Anything in 1988. This is where people started to take notice, and they're like, wow, this is an interesting sound. This is an interesting band. There's not quite much like this. That record was pretty successful. They wanted to jump right into the studio and make an instant successor. Something that was going to be a smash hit that everyone's going to jump on and love. So they started recording Loveless in February of 1989. 89. I don't know if you know when this record was released. Yeah, it's two years after that. (laughs) Like, Yeah. That's a long production. There might have been a few things that went wrong. Just for a little bit of perspective. They expected the recording of this album and the production, the mixing, mastering, all of that to be done within five days.
1: Um, Guys, (laughs) guys, holy shit. The bar, gentlemen, raise your bar a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Kevin Shields was like, yeah, they expected us to do this in five days. And when we were like, no, that's not going to happen, they were a little freaked out. Keep in mind, this is in the first week. They're like, oh no, I hope you guys hurry up soon. 1989, two years later, it comes out. There is some there is some
1: breathing down some necks. I, I, foresee, I foresee tensions being high.
0: Before we get into a lot of the troubles with it, the band was known for this very loud sound, but during these recording uh, periods, they didn't use that many layers. In fact, a lot of songs, Kevin Shields says, use only one guitar track. He didn't do any layers. It was all one guitar making all of that noise. And that's something that he preferred because he didn't he thought that the more layers he added the less real it would be. I I mean dog it's it's all i already look at you playing a six-string guitar
1: and hear that coming out it's already <laughs> unreal it's already so
0: beyond it's it's a salvador dali painting <laughs> the the disparity between what i am seeing and what i am hearing i found that really fascinating because when you listen to the record that's not what you think of i agree it's weird cuz people see this as the ultimate shoegaze record but he doesn't use almost any effects other than the 30 it's mostly EQs and that reverse reverb. He doesn't use anything that most of the other bands use. He didn't do any other layers. It was all just one guitar, and I found that really interesting. No,
1: yeah, I agree. Like, when I when I hear that, I I assume it's a lot of layering. I assume it's a lot of different effects going into it. But when you say it's actually like a pretty... Sh- I, I mean, it's the shoegaze equivalent of minimalism, it sounds like. Which is weird, because you listen to the
0: album, and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, no, it's anything but minimal. <laughs> One of the other interesting things that Kevin Shields did was he would record guitar feedback, he would get a noise he liked, and then he would use a sampler and play it on the sampler to make some of the melodies because you couldn't really play a good melody with all those effects. So how are you gonna get like actual notes playing? Right. Put it on a keyboard that's i i gotta say that that's pretty ingenious actually i like that like almost any single part of that album when you're like oh i could actually hear an arpeggio i could actually hear notes being played it was them <laughs> it, playing a fucking keyboard guitar basically
1: it's such a technical and well thought out solution to a problem that he made by putting so many fucking <laughs> effects on it
0: you will see that Kevin Shields is a very self-defeating person a, as yeah. we go through this time. He's lives. his own worst enemy. Shields had a very specific idea for how this album was supposed to go. He did almost everything musically. Uh, there was a band of four. He did almost every single sound in the entirety of the album. He played Belinda Butcher's guitars and just said, we'll credit you, but I'm going to play it. And <laughs> she was like, okay, that's fine. I cool. sucked anyway. Cool. Yeah, She was like, She's like, I was never that good at guitar anyway. Oh, Belinda, give your... (laughs) Please. Some esteem is appreciated. (laughs) She wrote about a third of the lyrics, which we'll get into, but most of the time it was Kevin Shields. And she kind of wrote lyrics based on whatever he already had. Bassist Debbie Gooch showed up quite often at first, but realized (laughs) that Kevin Shields wanted to do all of the bass himself anyway. And she basically was like a... I don't even want to say third wheel, like a second wheel. He was like a fucking unicycle <laughs> in the studio. She just stopped fucking showing up. And I don't even know if he noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't imagine. So so let
1: me get this straight. These members, though, they're there for the live stuff, right? Like
0: Yes, they are there okay. for the live stuff. But when it came to the studio project which Kevin Shields also likes to state they are not a studio band. It pissed him off when people said that. Despite that, he was very, very controlling in the studio and quite the perfectionist. Uh, he, yeah, it was it was the Kevin Shields
1: solo act in the studio. That's, he doesn't like to be called a studio band because it's not a band. It's, it's
0: Kevin Shields. That's essentially what the album is, is a solo album for Kevin Shields. <laughs> and poor Debbie, she kept showing up and like she was contributing nothing. So she just stopped and... Belinda Butcher, like she said, "Oh, I'm bad at guitar." Oh, it's fine that Debbie stopped showing up. Kevin would have gotten pissed off trying to teach her all the bass parts anyway, what so the might fuck? as well cut out the middleman.
1: What the? Hang on, hang on. Let me, let me, let me get this straight though. They, they all wrote it together, though, right? Kevin didn't write the entire, or did not he write the whole thing? He
0: did the whole thing. He was the main songwriter. God damn. And pretty much the band members were just there so that they could do it live. I, yeah. What the fuck? Uh, now, the one thing that he didn't actually play were the drums. However, uh, Column who I'm never going to pronounce his last name again, uh, <laughs> he did not actually perform on anything other than the opening track, Only Shallow, due to a lot of physical ailments. And what he did was record a bunch of different drum loops... And then Kevin would later go in the studio and put them wherever he wanted. Uh Uh-huh. The only thing that the drummer actually contributed on was, I think all him, the third track, Touched, which was only a minute long. That was the drummer's sort of experimental thing. He's like, "Eh, I want to get something of mine on there. So he had a minute long noisy little thing. As far as I know, it was just a matter of, either like an illness or just like, I don't know, the fucking flu. And then Kevin's like, great, now I don't have to worry about a drummer. It's all mine.
1: I, I feel like Kevin was lacing the salad bar with some with some fucking dangerous chemicals because, god, <laughs> god damn, he, he didn't know how to play the drums, but he still didn't want someone else to have any control
0: over this. Uh, in another interview, Kevin Shields said, Honestly, most of the time you couldn't even tell he wasn't there. All of the samples were pretty much what he would play anyway, which I feel is like a thinly veiled insult that he just played the same thing over and over. He's like, the only problem was that it was a little bit of a pain to do the sampling where he could have just played it, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That fucking loser getting sick. What a waste of time. So a lot of the album just consists of drum loops. But at the same time, Shields didn't mind that because on tracks like Soon, the closing track, he wanted that sort of dance-inspired backbeat. So the sampling would have happened regardless. Uh, I don't know if Belinda ever went on an interview and said, Yeah, you know, really? At the end of the day, we didn't need a drummer. We just needed a machine. (laughs) She's she's such a yes man for the toxicity of this man. She, She was like... The opposite of passive aggressive. She was like passively peaceful, yeah, really. <laughs> I, I want to ask you a question. How many studios do you think a typical album is recorded in, and how many engineers do you think are involved?
1: Oh, jeez. I uh, you know what? i'll be I'll be confident in my dummy answers. I'm gonna assume one studio and I'm going to say, engineers,
0: like is that is that that could be anything from just, being at the audio board to mixing and mastering. Okay. So just sort of like the the computer guys. Yeah, my first idea was just the producer in general. Uh, I don't know, maybe three or four engineers. That's a pretty good guess. Keep in mind that this is an indie record. This is not uh, on anything from like Sony records or anything like that. This is a small band. Sure. Sure. They recorded Loveless in 19 different studios. Kevin. (laughs) Okay, excuse me. 18 studios. They took another one. The 19th was for mixing and mastering. (laughs) Kevin. (laughs) Kevin, slow down. And they had 16 engineers.
1: I know why this took so fucking long. Kevin had to pack his (laughs) shit and move
0: to 19 different studios. He would often just say, there's a problem. I want to go somewhere else without giving any explanation. And the record label's like, are you sure we we can't keep spending money? He's like, well, no, this place stinks. How did
1: he not break... Are there, like, leases and contracts you sign for these kind of... Did he bankrupt the label with how much money he spent making this? Like, well... Okay, I called it. Well, <laughs> well I called it. <laughs> I won't say
0: completely. There are a couple of conflicting reports. Let's just say at one point... When they switched studios, the label said, okay, fine, what the fuck ever, just get the album done. But they didn't have enough money to pay the studio, so they held all of the band's equipment ransom until they got their money back. Was this studio 19? Was this the 19th one that was holding them hostage? No, this was not. I I don't know which one this was in the middle of all this. I want to say it was like 12, 13. I don't really know.
1: The other the other 17, 18 are looking like, damn, that's a good idea. Do
0: we have any of their instruments? <laughs> I don't know if this actually happened, but I want to say the record label was like, okay, Shields, you have to go and pay this yourself. We're not fucking buying your equipment back. I think the band had to pay for that out of pocket. Now, keep in mind that Kevin Shields, he likes to try to downplay this a lot. He likes to say, oh, it didn't cost that much. Oh, we didn't really have that many engineers. He said that most of those engineers were just in the way. They came with the studios and he told them to fuck off. <laughs> I full-heartedly believe it. There, You will not hear a peep otherwise from me. He was involved in engineering and mastering and mixing as well. He was involved with all the instruments. And let's be clear, involved is one way to put it. In
1: charge is another way. It's not as though everyone <laughs> abandoned him and said, Shields, this is all you. Kevin, I'm sorry. Kevin was very gung-ho cavalier about owning this, it sounds like. <laughs>
0: And like, apparently all the engineers that didn't have anything to do with anything were like, what the, f- what the fuck are you doing? That's not how you produce something. Why are you recording your guitar like that? Are you playing it through a keyboard? Fucking stop that. And stop. He's like, Man, I just, We got this. We're fine. <laughs> really go home. He told him to go home. He's like, we, we have this just let us run your shit. I'm giving you paid vacation. Please leave. I'm Kevin Shields. Now, there were two particular engineers that actually knew what the band was doing and were actually supportive of Shields. The most notable of which is Alan Mulder, who I'm actually very familiar with because he worked on a lot of shoegaze albums, and when the genre sort of phased out of popularity, he went on to work with bands such as Smashing Pumpkins, Nine Inch Nails, Mm -hmm. The Killers. Mm. He mixed Corn's first album, as well as Marilyn Manson's either first or Antichrist Superstar and Arctic Monkey's favorite worst nightmare. He's been involved in a lot of really, really notable albums. And I've seen his name pop up a lot. I think his most involved band is Nine Inch Nails. And this is pretty early on in his career. Uh, a fucking nightmare, might <laughs> <tried> I add. <laughs> the album took a long time to record. So during the spring of 1990, he actually went to work on the Jesus and Mary Chains automatic. And that is technically his first credited album. But make no mistake, he's been a part of this two-year saga of an album. He was briefly replaced by Angeli Dutt later on during the summer of 1990, he came back and he was shocked about how little progress was made after he left. (laughs) He like, (laughs) he showed up and he was like, Kevin, what the fuck? What do you have done with this record? And this is paraphrase. Of course, this is how Shields remembered it. Uh, During the recording, he was like, um, yeah, there's the song we have. And then, Alan would be like oh yeah uh is it done no no uh we have recorded the guitars I think last year <sighs> oh, oh okay um does it have any vocals no uh, how about words do you have lyrics written up for- no <laughs> no no it's just not does it have a title it has a number oh yeah it's, it's song 12 <laughs> it's got a number. <laughs> They would literally spend, during this two-year process, they weren't like making some songs and then later ones would be added. They would record the guitars in 89. And then in 1991, they're like, ah, shit, I guess we should do the vocals now. Oh my god. This is the perfect album to show somebody where you want to showcase what laziness is i would say for for as much goddamn control as he wants it doesn't sound like he's doing anything with it he's known for just like not fucking doing anything and keep in mind that he is the guy in charge he of everything of all of it he doesn't really want to get a jump start he doesn't really have any sort of need to actually get it finished he's like eh, i'll record the guitars two years from now eh, we'll we'll do the lyrics later Hang on, no, 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 no.
1: I know you guys want to do that now. I'm looking, I'm shopping real estate on the next studio.
0: (laughs) He would say that sometimes they would have trouble with songs because they would record them and so much time would go by that when they revisited them, he's like, oh shit, what guitar tuning did I use? I don't remember. As if that really mattered when it came to shoegaze. Yeah, no, it wouldn't matter.
1: (laughs) You're gonna fucking make it discordant melodies anyway. It's it's not gonna be (laughs) remotely close to what you're playing it in. Oh my god. The
0: time period of two years was so long that the record label was like, you have to have something. We cannot just pour our money into this fucking money pit of a record. So they released two EPs during this time period where... From what it sounds like, these EPs were not part of the album process. They recorded these as really quick cash grabs because they had no money. So they recorded the EP Glider, released that in April 1990, named after the Glider Guitar Technique. And then in February 1991, they released Tremolo. Keep in mind, I just mentioned February 1991. That was two years since they started recording the Mm -hmm. album.
1: (laughs) They gotta be getting close to
0: a release. Uh, Two songs from those EPs actually did make it onto the album, so they weren't just purely waste of time. The song Soon was included in Glider, and the song To Hear Knows When was included in Tremolo. Those would end up on the album. The vocals were not started until May of 1991, with the exception of those two songs I mentioned, which they had to finish for the EP. Right. They started vocals May 1991. Most of the time, where they were recording vocals, both uh, Kevin Shields and Belinda Butcher forbid people from listening in on their vocal takes. And they were forced to look at the audio levels without hearing it. So that when the audio levels stopped, they knew to reset and they were going to do another take. And they would just do that without hearing it. Speechless. You have rendered me speechless. (laughs) Not even that. They would show up without lyrics, and what would happen is Kevin would go and he would sing whatever the fuck he want, but he did not tell Butcher what he sang. She would write down what she thought he said, go in and then sing that. You can't-
1: Mr. (laughs) Kevin, you can't make the lyrics of your album a game of
0: telephone. (laughs) To this day, nobody knows what they sing. He said that they are good lyrics, because there's nothing worse than bad lyrics, but- They refuse to mention, Belinda Butcher refuses to reveal anything she wrote, and Kevin said he forgot. (laughs) I don't- I don't doubt it, the dude was making the rest of the album, he had bigger
1: fucking fish to fry.
0: Not only that, but like, the only time that Belinda Butcher would record- was like seven in the morning they would wake her up for that more dreamy sleepy sound to have her voice sort of be very soft and then she would listen to whatever bumble that kevin would <laughs> spit out and she'd be like eh, i think he's saying something about like a monkey i'll sing that we don't know we can't hear it because the fucking guitar is so loud one of my favorite uh, little tidbits on the song when you sleep which has my favorite melody by the way in the album is mm-hmm. Kevin Shields got frustrated and bored listening to all of the vocal takes they did. They did anywhere from, like, 12 to 18. Okay. And he said, fuck it. Put them all in. So there are literally 18 Kevin Shields or Belinda Butchers just mumbling all of these different words. I don't know how many times they wrote different lyrics and put that on top. That explains
1: so much about the vocals of some of these tracks and that one you named specifically was like that was my biggest i posed a hypothetical in my head of there's only one reason it could sound like this and it was (laughs) it's a cacophony of like the same two people nine times
0: oh my god that is literally what it is that's exactly what it is and some of those takes were probably shitty. That, there was a reason they didn't use just one take. So it's just all of these voices. And he's like, you know what? It sounds cool that we can't understand what we're saying. We'll keep it. I like that. I don't know if they did that on other songs, but on that song in particular, it's very, very
1: nice. Yes. Notable. That that one you mentioned specifically, it, it exemplifies that tenfold.
0: Kevin Shields would almost always sing the higher register of the songs while Belinda Butcher who had a higher voice than Kevin, would sing the lower on purpose. Yep, makes sense. So we've talked a lot about how they spent two years just crafting this album, but we haven't really checked in with our good old pal, McGee. Uh, The founder of Creation Records. Alan McGee really believed in the band. He he knew what they were about. He knew that they were this noisy, very meticulous band, and he had faith. You know who didn't have faith? (laughs) The second in command of Creation Records. Dick Green. At one point, he called up Kevin Shields on his phone, and he was crying for them to finish because they had no more money left. (laughs) Fucking crying. This guy was only 29 years old. He was fucking broke. (laughs) This album was draining them of all money. Whatever albums they released in between those two years Didn't matter because they kept pouring money into this co-workers were concerned about his mental health He would open the uh, Daily Mail the morning post Shaking with fear. Did they not have another band on their label? Could they not rely on anyone else? They had a lot of other bands. This album was just so expensive. Yeah Mm -hmm. Cuz you cuz you gave Kevin Shields a blank check you goddamn fool. Specifically, it seems like Alan McGee really believed in the album, but everyone else was terrified about losing their jobs and losing all of their money. Uh, at one point, he just came into the office and his hair turned gray, like overnight. He just came in with gray hair and he looked like he wanted to die. He <laughs> he fucking saw a
1: ghost of his fu- the future of his company. He had a, he had a, he had a Scrooge McDuck. And the dead future of his company came to him in his sleep. He saw the
0: ghost of Creation Records' future, and it was named Shields. It was named Shields. So, yeah, he called up Kevin, crying, telling them to finish. After this phone call, uh, Kevin Shields and Belinda Butcher had to stop because they had tinnitus. (laughs) Because they were playing at such loud volumes, they literally couldn't hear. They were just, they had to stop. Friends and band members told them it was probably because they were playing at fucking incredible volumes. Shields dismissed it as ill-informed hysteria. Mm Mm-hmm, that's poppycock. (laughs) That's that's rubbish. (laughs) So when they finally finished recording in 1991, two years later, the record label, McGee, Dick Green, they were ecstatic because mastering usually only takes a day. They just have to make sure the volume is at a good level for radio and for the album overall, and they could release it. They took it to the 19th studio, and the computer that they used to master and mix, I don't know about mix, but definitely to master, was on a machine that previously was only used for movie dialogue in the 1970s. (laughs) Strangely enough, this old dinosaur of a computer threw the album out of whack. The entire thing was out of phase.
1: I can't.
0: Roll my eyes harder. I- oh... Now, I could lie and say they just release it anyway and you would believe me, but no, they actually had to piece it back together. And Shields, literally himself, put everything back together by memory. Just if it felt right to him, it, eh, that's close enough. That's how it was supposed to sound. Two
1: years of work mixing and mastering and running your fucked-up guitar at, through a keyboard, all of that boils down to a spur-of-the-moment, eh, this-feels-right, like, last-minute-putting-it-back-together decision.
0: All of this because of a machine that was probably used to put in dialogue to Indiana Jones. Yeah. Or Superman. Like, it's just like...
1: <laughs> I, I just... Why? You've already
0: sunk so much
1: goddamn money into it. Don't cut corners now. I don't know why they just didn't use one of the other 18
0: studios.
1: Right! Like, what? Just they go back. back! to one. Go back!
0: Oh The mastering process, because of Shields having to personally piece it together by memory, took 13 days. This is where the fun part comes in. Spencer, I asked you how many studios, how many engineers, mm-hmm. typically for an album. Usually it is maybe one, two, if you're a major label band and you want to record in, like, you know, the fucking Alps or whatever the fuck. Yeah. And maybe there's, like, an engineer and he's got a couple others to come in to help, like, plug in guitars Maybe a different one for mixing and mastering, but now we're going to come across the cost, Spencer. D- this is an independent album. Oh, don't, don't make me guess. <laughs> How much do you think this album cost? Two million. It's not that bad. It's not that it's, bad. It's okay, not it's not that exorbitant. They spent two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. The American equivalent is $458,000. Yeah. Almost half a million. Uh huh. This is according to magazine Melody Maker, by the way. This is something that is sort of contested by different people. Let me just give you a little bit of a point of reference. Please. Yeah. Four hu- $458,000. Let's just round that up to half a million, okay? Yeah. The yeah. biggest album to come out that year is probably uh, Nirvana's Nevermind. <laughs> You know, the grunge classic. Yeah. That cost $65,000. And that was Nirvana's major label debut. They had major label money behind them. That yeah. cost 65000 Queen's A Night at the Opera was the most expensive album ever made at the time in 1975. How much was it? That cost half a million today. So if you compared, they spent as much money as Queen when they recorded Bohemian Rhapsody and the entirety of A Night at the Opera so they're pretty much on par. Yeah, they're pretty much queen. God, honestly, I don't even
1: know if Brian May used effects pedals. Like... (laughs) I don't even think
0: those were guitars being played through a keyboard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think... I don't think they even
0: played one instrument through a second instrument. Fucking amateurs. What a bunch of hacks. What a bunch of hacks. What were they even spending their money on, huh? Kevin Shields said that it's not as bad as it sounded. He said that Alan McGee was being a hype man and he purposely was inflating the cost. Kevin Shields said that at most, when him and the band thought of it and added up expenses themselves, it was closer to 160,000 euros. Yeah. Over $300,000. Only, only that much. Oh, only- Which, you know, 200,000 less than a night at the opera.
1: <laughs> it's a lemonade stand, is what you're <laughs> it's describing. It's a lemonade stand. <laughs>
0: And he said most of that was just living expenses. <laughs> so they spent oh, like three hundred thousand uh, dollars on like
1: cheeseburgers. Most of that was,
0: most of that was the moving trucks we used to go from studio to studio. You know, honestly, probably he said only a few thousand were the costs for the actual album, and that they probably spent like most of the money themselves. They said that the record label only spent fifteen to twenty thousand pounds themselves so what he's saying is he's a terrible musician to hire on for your label Uh, also fun fact he said that all the material on the album was about representative of only four months of the two years they worked just to rub salt in the wound of poor dick green and alan mcgee why why
1: does he just keep making this fucking worse He, he just keeps opening his mouth
0: no, my, my favorite. I didn't know about this. I, I learned this just today. Alan McGee said it was like half a million. <laughs> poor fucking Dick Green said, no, it was even more than that. <laughs> he said, no, they're not even talking. They're talking about when they were recording. They weren't even thinking about the mixing, the mastering, the EQing, all of the stuff to package it. It was like 20,000 more pounds than they were even uh, saying in the press. Poor Dick Green. That was the recording process. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how we personally feel about the sound before we talk about the aftermath. Spencer, mm-hmm. this is an album that I hold very dear to my heart. I would say this is one of my favorite albums of all time. Okay, I'm not the biggest fan of Isn't Anything, but I certainly respect it and I do listen to it quite a bit as well as their EPs. But this is an album that I just listen to constantly. This band did so many interesting things that most bands never really did again. Sometimes I look it at it and I'm like, this could just be my favorite album of all time. I could really see that. Spencer, how did you feel about it? Okay, so do you remember the first text I sent you? You said it was fucking awful?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I just need to give you a little context. <laughs> the, the, I'm glad you've set up how near and dear this album is to you, so it feels like I'm beating a puppy to death um hey i mean you know what i didn't fucking
0: make it i don't care
1: that's so so (laughs) i was listening when i sent that i had begun listening i was 15 seconds in listening to a joke upload of this album where the snare starts off and it never ends It, it goes for 48 minutes and it's just that snare and i listened to it for at least 30 seconds and thought God, what is he seeing in this? Oh my god, that is so great. So so understand <laughs> that fucking awful isn't necessarily what I'm about to really think of the album.
0: I really thought that you were going to listen to my bloody or er, bullet for my valentine and we were going to be talking about two completely <laughs> different albums too.
1: So so when I first pulled it up I found a a, a 480p YouTube upload of the whole album and I thought oh this is crunchy like okay the, the quality must be bad so i go to apple music i pull it up and i stream it in hd and i realize oh that was that's just that's just what it sounds like <laughs> this was intentional <laughs> this album has a threatening aura i'll just say that there's tracks where i like what i'm hearing it's a peaceful bliss and then just snap oh next track i'm in act two of a psychological thriller J- th- hannibal lecter's chasing me down a
0: fucking meat locker <laughs> I love that you say that because that is actually something that a lot of people go through with this album because most people who love it love it for those peaceful moments but when you first hear it like Only Shallow that rip-roaring riff that sounds like an elephant being strangled to death Mm -hmm. when you first hear that you're like this is fucking nonsense It's,
1: I don't know it must be reminiscent to like uh, uh, the song A Day in the Life by the Beatles I love that song and then there's these Fucked up interludes for like 30 seconds at a time where an orchestra dies and then it just goes back to a song. That just goes (laughs) back to being a song.
0: That is a brilliant comparison because I also love it when the orchestra dies in a day in the life. That's my favorite Beatles song almost because of that. So I like, I see the beauty in this noise, but a lot of people when they first hear it, it's like nauseating.
1: There's a lot of melodies in this song that are, I think I said it earlier... Discordant. Very dissonant. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. You know, things that sound like I'm subliminally having milk poured down my shirt, like, that's <laughs> that's the vibe I get off of it. Okay, like, I understand the atmosphere and, and repetition are a big part of Shoegaze and the album in general, and this, yes. this might be the punk in me, but there's, like, a little too much repetition in it. It comes to the point of annoyance for me, actually, at some tracks, and it, it, it reaches a point where it doesn't add anything. Mm-hmm and it's just the same riff over the same drum pattern over the same bass line for upwards of 30 seconds to a minute. You know something's wrong when I'm begging for the 19 voices to come back. The vocals (laughs) sound like a haunted house. It it
0: sounds like a haunted house with the treble turned up too high. You are like hitting the nail on the head to why people love this album just as much as I could see why you would hate it. I would almost consider it very similar to an ambient album to where... If you are involved in the atmosphere and you're feeling that dreamier side and you just want to be enveloped in noise, that repetition is actually a positive. And you know, the longest song on here soon, seven minutes long, it's purposely got that repeated drum loop. Mm-hmm. They have this weird flute-sounding guitar thing that they're playing throughout the entirety of it. And the only time where it changes is Kevin Shields turns on a different amp and has this extra layer of distortion before he sings. And then they go back to the dancy flute-sounding stuff, and it's seven minutes of that. Mm-hmm. It's just a barrage of noise. The closest you get to a song that makes sense is maybe the song Sometimes, yes, which is like a song without a chorus. It's pretty much like an ambient rock album.
1: Very much so. Every four songs, they have something that like I really start to like, even if it's just for a minute, because I'm, I'm a riff guy. Riffs are, you know, that's what sticks with me. Some people are are cat people, some people are dog people. I am a riff guy. And the thing is, though, is that the riffs tend to, like, disappear behind this this noised-out guitar. And the effects on on the rhythm guitar drive me nuts. Because they give you a perfect (laughs) comparison throughout the whole fucking song. It's like, here's the riff. You like the riff. Enjoy this riff. Oh, what if I poured the sonic equivalent of gravel over it? How do you like that? Is that good? No? You want the riff back? Sorry, I'm
0: Kevin Shields. (laughs) That should be, like, the fucking alternate title. Sorry, I'm (laughs) Kevin Shields. An album by My Bloody Valentine, question mark? A lot of bands try to use Atmosphere at some sort of capacity. Pink Floyd is known for their use of synthesizers with rock music, but still maintaining these solid songs... Even if they drift into one another, you could still hear the guitars playing these melodies. Radiohead has a guitarist specifically who makes these interesting noises, but they always have some semblance of what you expect in a rock song. And this album is like nothing but the noise. Exactly.
1: Yeah, it throws off my expectations severely, you know, because my first foray into this band was uh, the single off of their first album, Feed Feed Me With Your Kiss. kiss. Yeah, that song sounds nothing like everything else on the entire album, but that was my first song. That was -hmm. was all I had, context-wise, going into Loveless. So it's like I heard something almost Ramones adjacent, and then I get into this, and it's like such a cold bucket of water to the face. Those are my takes, though. Those are my takes on the album.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how the album came out, the sort of aftermath. Please, I would love to know. In order to promote the album, the band toured Europe, and their tour was considered the second loudest tour in the history of music. According oh, to Mojo magazine my god. I feel like there was some world war II like bomb
1: detecting technology that went <laughs> into that statement They're like wow we registered this one all across
0: Europe Enemy editor Danny Kelly was at one of the concerts with a drink in hand as soon as they played their guitar The drink flew out of his hand. He called it more torture than entertainment <laughs> uh, The band was accused of criminal negligence Oh, my God. (laughs) And during a performance of their song, you made me realize they went into an impromptu noise jam that lasted half an hour (laughs) that the music press called the Holocaust. What the fuck?
1: (laughs) That's not a statement you can use lightly in Europe. (laughs)
0: Holy shit. Like, there's like a memorial museum for this tour. Really? People didn't make it.
1: Really? Your fucking concerts are an endurance test. Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing I thought of is, what was
0: the loudest? Really? What was was the loudest concert? So I looked it up, and apparently the band Blue Cheer, which is one of those bands that is considered the inventor of heavy metal, played a concert. Which was considered fucking terrible. <laughs> Apparently, there is a myth that when they started playing, uh-huh. a dog exploded. <laughs> what the... F- no! <laughs> they so I so loud that a dog literally blew up.
1: Blue Cheer played a
0: show so loud a dog exploded. <laughs> Kevin Shields was terrified that the album took so long and it was so hyped that it was going to be critically panned because of how much it was talked about. But actually, the album was critically loved this album is considered a masterpiece a classic and from the get-go people loved it despite them calling their live shows the holocaust and more torture than Uh, entertainment uh, uh. it was completely loved however when it costs half a million dollars and you're a shoegaze band and it's 1991 and grunge comes out and nevermind comes out and Britpop becomes a thing, money is kind of hard to come by. And it's kind of hard to sell a Shoegaze album. So, yeah. No, it didn't make its money back. Uh, Alan McGee (sighs) told the band, fuck you. You, We're dropping you like a fucking hot potato. It only peaked at number 24 on the UK album charts, and it didn't peak anywhere else. It was uh, ported to the US by Sire Records. Uh, Uh I'm assuming they didn't (laughs) fucking... turn to ash like an Indiana Jones, like Dick Green. (laughs) At this point, I'm
1: assuming Dick Green looks like he opened the Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) He's, He's just a puddle of a
0: man. I'm thinking of the guy who drank from the wrong Holy Grail. 1991. A lot of critics at this point were tired of shoegaze, which is interesting because this is the album that people see as the shoegaze album. Right. But at this point, a lot of music press was considering shoegaze the scene that celebrates itself. They saw.
1: I've seen. Th- I've seen that thrown around. Actually, I've seen that that phrase. They thought
0: it was a bunch of self indulgent, uh, middle class white kids who would constantly <laughs> just go to each other's concerts and perform in each other's bands, and they mm-hmm. were boring and they didn't have any stage presence. You couldn't understand a fucking word they said, and it was just basically considered a circle jerk, pretty much. Yeah. Basically, yeah. And you know, at this time, you have grunge which is all about this raw energy and about being honest. You have bands like Alice in Chains singing about how they're on heroin. You have Nirvana purposely making these very accessible songs pretty much for angry young kids. And then you have Britpop specifically in the UK, which specifically had lyrics that were based on the working class about struggling and being your everyday Joe. So Shoegaze was just sort of out of popularity people kind of were tired of the genre and it pretty much died. Yeah. It's one of those genres where it does have some sort of comebacks, but for the most part its influence is what lives on rather than the genre itself. A lot of people really loved Kevin Shields experimentation with guitar playing, but they never it doesn't seem like any band even tries to go towards that because Loveless is like as good as you can get. Creation Records. You mentioned how they could have been bankrupt. (laughs) Yeah. Now, it's a common myth that they went completely bankrupt. But when I read about it, apparently Creation Records founder Alan McGee only sold half the label. I thought the label (laughs) completely disintegrated, but that's not the case. He sold half of it to Sony, though, because he couldn't afford it all himself. Guess what the first band they signed on to Creation Records after he sold it? I couldn't even put a guess down. Suede. Well, not quite Suede. Uh, It's a little known band. Uh, They were very small. They got kind of successful. Oasis. Eat my shorts. The guys who would go on to make Wonderwall. Champagne Supernova. Don't look back in anger. Are you serious? One of the best selling bands. As soon as he sold half the record label, Sony's like, Yeah, let's try these guys out.
1: Holy moly. Oasis. Wow. So
0: Creation Records still lived on for a little bit. It eventually closed shop, but it seemed like one of those things where just eventually was swallowed up whole by Sony and selling half of it was just sort of like a a little bit of treatment, but it's still terminal. Yeah. Kevin Shields would go on to be very secluded. He's a very shy guy. He doesn't give a lot of interviews. Uh, and, you know, he they tried to make a third album at this time. But he went crazy in doing so. Nothing he made he really liked. The band members eventually left the band. They're like, fuck this. We're not doing anything. I
1: just gotta say, you've really
0: fucked up if you make every Yes Man Belinda leave. (laughs) (laughs) You've really fucked up. A lot of people in the music industry were making rumors that he lost his marbles, very similarly to Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys or Sid Barrett of early Pink Floyd. Uh, I don't think it was as bad as them. He eventually... Kind of found his footing again. He just said he was very lazy and he didn't, he wasn't that creative. (laughs) And when he was creative, that's when he was going to release something. They have three albums, right? Yes. Their third album is just called MBV and it had not come out until 2013. You thought two years was a long time. Wow. It's closer to right now than to Loveless. The band last said, specifically Colm, the drummer, said they were working on a new album that was due for release in 2018. It didn't come out. Oh, it it didn't? I think they're pushing it back to a 2082. Makes sense. Holy shit. This has been Blunderphonics. (laughs) This has been Blunderphonics. If you would like to watch more of us... Uh, Spencer actually has another podcast he runs, the Cock and Bull. Spencer, go ahead and tell us about that.
1: Oh, uh, it's uh, it's history, uh, it's comedy, it's short and sweet. Uh, I tell a story to my older brother, uh, a history major, who is, uh, I, uh, albeit far more informed than I am on most things, uh, and I tell him a little story he hasn't heard before that. You know, tries to just lower his bar for faith in humanity. Uh, I also have a uh, comedy sci-fi podcast called Cooperative Effort. It's like a it's like a radio play, I guess you could put it. It's about uh, some guys that get stranded on an island in space. Jack, got anything to plug? Um, I also recommend Cooperative Effort because I
0: did the soundtrack. That's true. And you play the <laughs> pilot. You have you the screams of death come from your mouth. I don't really have that much to plug. I sometimes stream on the Twitch channel New Jack Plus. It's been almost over a year since I last streamed, but I would love to pick it back up. But other than that, that's all I've got. Uh, Oh, I also stream uh,
1: my channel's Daddy Dunk. I do do Ocarina of Time randomizer sometimes.
0: If anything, you're going to find me commenting on his streams more than me actually streaming myself. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Blunderphonics. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope you have a lovely rest of your day.